Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Download episodes of previous shows. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Cool Hand News. My name is Dom Sweeney, and this is the Cool Hand News Podcast, episode 18. And my friends, they are going all in on the angry parents at the school board, it would appear. Yes, Merrick Garland has announced that he's mobilizing the FBI in response to the now infamous letter the school board Association sent to Joe Biden. You'll remember that letter, the one we read the other day. That's right, the one in which they call for using the Patriot Act against angry parents who don't want their children to be brainwashed any longer. Listen, folks, I am not joking when I say it's time to pull the kids out of school. That is where we are at. I'm not trying to be extreme. I'm not trying to upset you. I'm not trying to cause you undue stress, even. I'm just being real with you. These school boards think you are a domestic terrorist. And now Merrick Garland appears to agree with that sentiment. They think you should be completely separated from any decision that is made in regards to your child while they are in school. Remember, most of these educators, and particularly the administrative types, not all, but I would certainly say most, most of these administrative types, these educators, they don't think your kid is special. They don't think about what you want for your child while they're in the classroom. Sadly, Most of these administrators and a lot of these teachers think of your child as a product or a commodity, and you can bet on that. In fact, it's just like any other job. After a while, you no longer think about things the same way. You know what I mean. Think about your first day at work versus your day at work yesterday, as an example. I'd be willing to bet all my money that you have a different outlook on your job now than you did on your first day. Now, some of you may love your job, and for that you should be very grateful. And I know there are teachers out there who also love their jobs, and maybe even some administrators. Some of these teachers were made by God, in fact, to teach children. There are some excellent, excellent teachers 
out there. And for that, we should also be grateful. But the sad truth with most of these folks is that they are just doing their jobs. Now, where have we heard that before? That's right. In just about every diabolical situation this world has ever seen. Many of these people don't even like children. I definitely had teachers like that during the one year I went to public school. Teachers that literally hated you, and you could see it on their faces as they taught their class. And folks like that definitely don't see anything special about your child. Again, they see them as a commodity, something they have to deal with, and they probably think that you are filling their heads with domestic terrorist propaganda while they are at home. Here's another angle. Many of these people think, no, they don't think, they know that they are more qualified to instruct your kid than you are. They are the experts, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You may be like that at your job. You don't want some outsider coming in and bossing you around. You don't want the customer coming onto the production floor and telling you how to run your machine, as an example. Of course you don't. That goes against human nature, and you can guarantee that this is the mindset with many of these educators and administrators. And of course, there's this. We, we like to say things like, we pay your bills. We pay for the public schools. And of course, that's true, but none of these people are thinking about it. It's just like the federal government. The people work, who work in these institutions don't think about where the money is coming from. Why would, why would they? Do you think about things like that in relation to your job? I don't. As long as I get paid, I'm good to go. I never thought about the taxpayers paying my salary when I was in the Marine Corps, as an example. It never crossed my mind. So again, these educators and administrators are not thinking about this. They're not thinking about the fact that you, as the person paying for the work, want, want to have input. They think that your anger is unjustified. They actually think, again, that you are a domestic terrorist that should be labeled as such by the FBI, if you can believe that. They don't think your kid is special. They don't look at them like a child, even, after a while. At least, a lot of them don't. They look at them, again, like a commodity. And it's about control with so many of these folks. The masks, the CRT, you name it. Listen, there are plenty of bad actors involved in the education system. Do you know what's happening to your kid eight hours a day in school? No, you don't. You only know what your kid tells you, which is probably nothing. And then, of course, the, the school's not going to tell you anything either. Why would they? The people that work in these schools, for the most part, are people that like being in control. They're Democrats. And as we know, Democrats like being in control of other people's lives. Democrats are the ones that, that get involved with the HOA, as an example. There's, some of you probably have a fascistic HOA that won't allow you to fly your Trump flag or whatever it is. And you can bet that the person running that clown show is a Democrat every day of the week. 
These are the these are the people that like controlling what other people do. And there are definitely some sick bastards, pardon my expression, that work as teachers, as school board members, and as public school administrators. People that we wouldn't want anywhere near children. And folks, here's the big one. These kids are at these schools longer than they are with you at the kitchen table or in the living room. I alluded to this earlier. Your kid doesn't tell you what's happening in school. They're there from sunup to sundown in some cases. In all cases, they're there until at least 3 in the afternoon, and they probably go to school around 7 or 8. So these school teachers and administrators literally think that you do not know what's best for your child, and that they do. Simple as that. That's the way the system is designed, in fact. It's designed to make good little Democrat slaves for the system. That's what it's designed to do, period. And I have a feeling that you already know that. So again, when I say it's time to pull the kids out of these classrooms, I'm only saying it because it's the only option we have on the table. And I know it'll be hard. I know it'll turn your world upside down. But but let's not forget who we're talking about here. And it's already worse than it could ever be if your kids were homeschooled. Yes, parents are now being, they're now going to be investigated by the FBI for voicing their concern at school board meetings over CRT and the dirty pieces of cloth. These fascists are putting around your children's faces. Have you ever heard of something so draconian, so insane, the FBI investigating parents for voicing concern at school board meetings? And of course, this announcement made by Merrick Garland, it didn't point to any examples of this of these threats, this terrorism taking place. You can guarantee that the only thing these people are concerned about is people showing up, period. This is, this is a move. Full stop. This is a move to intimidate parents into not showing up at school board meetings. That's it. It was concocted from top to bottom for that sole reason. There is absolutely no threats happening. Well, I'm not going to say that. Maybe isolated ones. But parents don't go threaten school board members. They don't threaten teachers. They go and they eloquently explain their problems at school board meetings. You've seen it. And when the school board meetings get out of hand, it's because the school board members cut people's microphones and kick people out of the building and have the sheriffs come in and handcuff parents for not wanting, again, their child to have a dirty piece of cloth on its face. So no, this is not a response to credible threats or intimidation. This is 100%, and again, the only reason why this is happening is to intimidate people into not showing up at school board meetings. That's it. And like I've said, the only option at this point in time is to pull your kids out of school. It's that simple. It's that simple. Now, of course, simple doesn't mean easy. It doesn't mean easy. And you may say, Dom, I've heard you say this a thousand times now, and I'm getting sick of it. 
you don't you don't understand how difficult it would be for for me to make this change. In my response, well, would you rather be arrested by the FBI for speaking out at a school board meeting? Or how about this? Would you rather just give up and allow your kid to turn into a Marxist crackpot that reads Ibram X. Kendi in his spare time? One of the most insane and despicable human beings that has ever walked this earth that they are force-feeding on your kids. This Kendi guy thinks that your white kid is evil because of his skin color. That's how deranged these lunatics are that are in control of your children eight hours a day. And now the FBI wants to intimidate you from being involved in any way in that situation. And of course, like everything we're dealing with in this country, we have all the power in this situation. We have the power. Homeschooling is legal in this country. That's an option. Pull them out. There is no excuse. Pardon me for being irritated about this. Listen, this fight is here. We either win or we lose. And whether or not we win is dependent on us fighting harder than we've ever fought before. That's not an exaggeration for effect either. That's the reality. And if you're single, a single parent, and you're the breadwinner, and you've got three kids, I get it. I get it. It'll, it'll be the hardest thing to, to figure out, the hardest thing you've ever done. And we'll get to that in a second. But if you're a, a husband and wife team, a married couple, so to speak, or maybe you're not married, maybe you just have kids, if you have a dual, uh, dual parent household, there is no excuse to not pull the kids out of the classroom. You'll ha- you can figure out how to rely on the one income. It, you may have to reduce your uh, lifestyle, the, your spending habits by, by thousands of dollars a month. Who knows? But if that's what it takes, that's what you do. You have two people in the home that can teach one one of the one of these two people can teach the kids. One of them can go to work. One of you can go to work, I should say. It's it's I, I don't I don't know how to put it more simply. Sacrifices have to be made. I, we need to shake ourselves out of this illusion that this can be won. This battle can be won by us just being angry and then going about doing things like we always have. That's not going to work. We have to make immense and personal sacrifices if we want to win this fight. We are that far behind. Going to the school board meeting, especially now when they're going to sick the FBI on you, it's not going to work. But if you pull your kids out of school, if we all pull the kids out of school, that will work. And it, it, it'll work in the span of months. If every conservative parent who doesn't want their kid's brain to be filled with garbage, pulled their kid out of school tomorrow, this would be over. In fact, every problem we have on our hands right now would be over. That, that's, how, that's how massive of a move that would be. We could bring them to the table on every issue if we all pulled the, the kids out of school. That's it. Simple as that. Of course, that's not going to be what happens. But over time, If enough parents do this, it'll be a revolution and it will evolve. It will snowball 
More and more parents will jump on board. There will be more homeschooling groups, more communities in your area doing this homeschooling thing, which I'm going to get to in a second. But if you're a single parent, like I mentioned before, this may seem next to impossible for you. Next to impossible. But even if you're a single parent, you know someone who can watch your kids. Either your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncle, your grandparents, your friend, your neighbor, anyone. There is someone out there you can turn to. And if there isn't, if there really isn't someone, then that's heartbreaking. But I know that's also the reality for some folks. But for the vast majority of us, there is at least one person we can turn to for help. And if that person loves your kids, I have a feeling they'd want to help you out. There's someone that can watch the kids, even if it's just for a couple of weeks, while you, while you find a homeschooling group in your area, or while you start a homeschooling group. That's, that's the kind of thing that we are going to have to do. That's how hard it's going to be. No one is going to come and say, hey, I've got a homeschooling group. Why don't you send your kids over to my house tomorrow? That's not how this is going to go down. You will have to be the one that makes this happen. And it'll be the hardest thing that you've ever done. But fortunately, there are plenty of resources out there that can help in this process. I've mentioned them over and over again, and they're just one of many. Make Americans Free Again. They are doing an outstanding job on the homeschooling front. They're killing it. They have a conference call every two weeks that you can attend. They have a network of parents doing exactly what I'm encouraging you to do. But again, but again, excuse me, it will require a monumental amount of work on your end that that will be worth every minute of your time. I I assure you, I assure you, this, this is what we have to do, folks. This is how dire the situation is. We have the Attorney General of the United States, imposter though he may be, he is sending the FBI after parents who don't want their kids to be brainwashed. That's what's happening here. And he's doing it to intimidate you, to menace you into not going to the school board meeting. That's how serious this situation is. They are going to brainwash your kid, whether you like it or not, regardless of how much you bring it, like I keep saying, at the school board meeting. It doesn't matter. They don't care. They're not listening, and they will never listen to you. They will never listen to you. And until we understand that, until we understand that it's not just the CRT that's the problem, it's everything about the public education system. Everything. Until we understand that there is no school board meeting bringing it that can fix this issue, we're going to be continuously dealing with this nonsense we're dealing with. Pull the kids out of school. Moving on. I want to talk about this Facebook whistleblower situation because it's really caught the country by storm. Obviously, you know Facebook, Instagram were out for hours yesterday. Uh, Unfortunately, they did come back online. What a shame it would have been. If if Facebook and Instagram went away overnight, the world would be 
a much better place. It would be it would be so beautiful, in fact. But of course, that's not what happened. We we're gonna we're gonna have to be the ones that make that happen. The only way to make that happen is to give up the phones. That's another conversation for another day. And you may say it can't be done, Dom. And and, and my response is yes, it can. There's nothing that can't be done. That's a cop out. But we're not getting into that right now. This whistleblower. You'll you'll have noticed that the mainstream media is all in with this whistleblower, which should tell you all you need to know about the validity of this person's grievances. This is not a, a real whistleblower situation. It's very simple. This is an orchestrated attempt by the cabal, as I like to call them, to further crush free speech on social media. That's it. Simple as that. And this is exemplified perfectly in this next article from the National Pulse, a fantastic, fantastic platform. Uh, Rahim Kassam is in charge over there, and he does great work. But let's quickly read from this article just a bit, because I think it'll put things in perspective nicely and neatly for you. And the title, the headline, Facebook whistleblower, in quotes, donated 36 times to Democrats, including to anti-primary extremists and AOC. So right off the bat, you can see there may be a problem here. And the National Pulse goes on. Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen, or Hogan, I'm going to say Haugen, it looks more like Haugen, is a longtime Democrat donor supporting campaigns for far-left extremists and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She has also donated money to activist groups actively attempting to derail the U.S. primary process that allows ordinary members of the public to beat out establishment career politicians. Haugen's whistleblowing has been lauded by the corporate media, a sure sign that rather than being a sole actor attempting to call out corporate abuse, she is likely backed by some hefty interests. Haugen first anonymously leaked internal documents before revealing her identity and calling for mass censorship, censorship rather, on the Facebook or on Facebook. I don't know why they say on Facebook the Facebook, but it says that, I promise. But only, it goes on, of political ideas she opposes. That's right. And here's a a tidbit. This Francis Haugen uh, is apparently a lawyer, has a law degree. And look at that. Her law degree was paid for by Google. So she works at Google, or, or she's worked at Google, rather. She works at Facebook, or worked at Facebook. And Google paid for her law degree. Let, let me put it this way. Does this sound like someone who's blowing the whistle to further the cause of liberty? Remember what she's doing here. It, she, what she's saying is Facebook isn't censoring Enough hate speech. 
that's the, that's what she's blowing the whistle on. She said, and I guess I should have set the stage for this a bit better at the beginning. The her her what she's blowing the whistle on is Facebook being more interested in ad revenue on conservative pages like Dan Bongino's or Ben Shapiro's, more interested in the ad revenue than the hate speech that she's concerned with. But of course, she's not talking about actual hate speech. She's talking about political ideology she opposes, political ideas that she thinks are bad. And of course, her ideas, her technocratic fascist disgusting ideas and you look look just look at this woman she has got democrat fascist written all over her face forgive me lord for bringing looks into the picture but eventually i just get so tired of these people with their absurdity they can't leave us alone they just can't leave us alone can they huh <sighs> I don't know what I don't know what these what their problem is. It's it's bizarre to me how another human being could want to control other human beings so badly that they're willing to pull a fake whistleblower stunt in order to get more censorship on social media as if there's not enough censorship on Facebook. Everyone with a dissenting opinion has been kicked off and I I actually agree with her. The only reason Facebook hasn't kicked Dan Bongino and Ben Shapiro off is because of their ad re- revenue. That, and they don't actually tell tell the truth all the all the time, or they or they tell half truths. They don't talk about theirs. They don't talk about the tens of thousand, tens of thousands who have died. They don't talk about the vaccine injuries. They don't talk about the the babies dying, which we're going to get to. Here in a bit. But yes, like this whistleblower says, I'm sure they do value the ad revenue on Bongino's page or Shapiro's page. And I'd much rather have those guys on Facebook telling the little truth they do tell than not having them there at all. So what this person is up to is is bad to go, as we say in the Marine Corps. Bad to to go. The inverse of good to go, which you'll hear veterans or active duty personnel say from time to time. Bad to go is the inverse of that. So regardless, this is not a whistleblower situation. What this woman is doing is it's an attempt to, it's an attempt to further suppress free speech on Facebook. And of course that'll trickle over to the other platforms, Instagram owned by Facebook, Twitter, they're already doing their own thing. YouTube, we, we know what they're doing. They're, they're now banning any, any speech on YouTube that says anything negative about vaccines. Even pointing out the truth, which is all anyone's trying to do, will get you banned on YouTube now. And Facebook, I'm sure, will cave <coughs> Excuse me, to this person, whatever they're up to. Obviously, the corporate media is all on board. And they're going to push this until they get some sort of action. You can bet on that. But let's get to some COVID quickly. 
Now, the CDC has updated VAERS, and there's a particularly horrific data point I want to touch on. This article, this next article, is from Humans Are Free, uh, one of the best sites on the internet. They do they do some of the best work. I kid you not, some of the best work on the internet. From a freedom perspective, from an alternative media perspective, they are top tier, top level stuff. And the headline from this particular article reads, 1,969 fetal deaths recorded following COVID-19 shots. And I'm just going to read a bit from this article. The CDC released more data today into VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which shows that there are now 1,969 fetal deaths among pregnant women, women, (laughs) pregnant woman, pregnant women who received a COVID-19 shot. By way of contrast, the author goes on, I performed the exact same search in VAERS for all non-COVID-19 vaccines, non-COVID-19 vaccines for the past 30 years, and it returned a result of 2,183 fetal deaths. And let's just look at that number. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's just take a look at that number in the headline again. 1,969 fetal deaths recorded following COVID-19 shots. And over the past 30 years, 2,183 fetal deaths. You do the math. Just do the math. Subtract the 2,183 fetal deaths, or excuse me, subtract the 1,969 fetal deaths from the 2,183 fetal deaths, and you'll probably come up with a number around 100 somewhere, or in that area somewhere. And that's the difference between the number of deaths that have happened following the COVID vaccines over the span of eight months, equivalent to the number of of fetal deaths associated with vaccines over the past 30 years. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What we're doing to these kids. It's truly, it's truly unbelievable. And you've heard me mention the COVID blog in the past. It's another outstanding website that writes actual news reports on people who've died, regular people who've died or been injured from these vaccines, they call them. And I want to read a bit from a recent post they made about a woman in Washington, D.C. who posted incessantly on social media about how she was breastfeeding while vaccinated and then tragically her baby died. And the stuff she was posting about is almost assuredly the most deranged crap I've ever heard in my life. And it ties in with this running theme We've stolen from the natural news guys, the branch COVIDians. Now, I don't know who actually coined that term. It would have been fairly simple to do, but I do know Mike Adams over at Natural News uses it often, and that's where we picked it up. Regardless, I want to read some of what this woman had to say on her Twitter account, I believe it was. That's that's now locked, by the way. Yes, she was more than happy to post away and invite comments while she was breastfeeding and vaccinated, but understandably, now that her newborn has tragically passed, she's locked her Twitter account and is no longer posting anything. 
And of course, when she made the announcement, why she made the announcement, we'll never know. But when she did make the announcement about her baby passing on Twitter, people were quick to point out the connection between babies dying and this vaccine. Like we mentioned, there, there, is, there has been 2,000, 2,000 number of fetal deaths following the COVID vaccine. The same number of deaths associated or, or, or the same number of fetal deaths associated with vaccines over the span of the past 30 years. And again, I'll let you do the math on that one. But I want to read just quickly from this from this post here from from the COVID blog. It says A 35-year-old woman with a master's degree in public health is grieving the unnecessary death of her infant son. In yet yet another very disturbing story of post-injection pregnancy. The article goes on. Mrs. McCulloch became pregnant sometime in October or November of 2020 with her second child. He was born in mid-July 2021. Shortly after the child she calls Baby Z was born, Mrs. McCulloch shared dangerous, irresponsible propaganda about mRNA injections and pregnancy. She talked about sharing her her immune... Wait, let me start that again. Sharing her immune protections with Baby Z, both in utero and via breastfeeding. Let me read one of this woman's tweets. I was so relieved to get vaccinated for COVID-19 while I was pregnant this year and to have some reassurance that I'm sharing my immune protections with my newborn now through breastfeeding. Happy to chat with expectant moms about questions if they're feeling hesitant. The article goes on. She really picked up her vax advocacy and coercion in September. Several tweets contained the hashtag, get vaccinated. Mrs. McCulloch spoke of her two little ones on September 18th while referencing a New York Times article that we won't be linking here. The tweet says, In those months that have passed, I've known multiple people who have died from COVID, including losing a grandparent. I'll take a walk later this week to plant a flag with her name. Please, hashtag, get vaccinated, which is our best way to prevent mid-severe disease and death. And, she goes on, as a parent of two little ones and a daughter of a transplant recipient, remember that vaccines are one tool that work best paired with other prevention measures, which protect those who cannot be vaxxed. The Swiss cheese model, she says, and then links to a New York Times article that I'm not going to waste your time with. Essentially, this woman is a deranged lunatic. The next tweet, nine days after these advertisements for Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, she tweeted this, Yesterday, my littlest one passed away unexpectedly and suddenly at two and a half months. We don't have answers on how or why. But if you have littles at home, give them an extra squeeze today. And I'm going to stop there. I don't want to rub it in, shall we say. And and of course, I'm devastated, as any human being would be, that someone lost a child. But let's get very real. 
about this. Very real. And you may say, dude, this is inappropriate. The poor woman's baby died, and you should just leave it alone. And of course, I'd say, absolutely not, my friends. We have a responsibility to warn people against doing what this buffoon did while she was pregnant. After all, she advertised it on Twitter. Advertised, encouraged others to breastfeed while while vaccinated. Passing her immune protectants onto her child through her breast milk. Have you ever heard of something so diabolical and sick? No, this woman is responsible, and we're going to get to why. Let me, let me pose the question like this. If a mother takes an injection filled with poison that has been proven to cause death and illness and then turns around and breastfeeds her newborn and brags about doing so while vaccinated... And then on top of that, she encourages others to pull this stunt. And then tragically, the newborn dies. What do you call that? Is that just a sad accident? It doesn't sound that way to me. After all, what do we say about parents who use drugs while pregnant? What does it say on every bottle of booze sold in this country? Women who are pregnant are not supposed to consume Alcohol, I'm paraphrasing, but you know what I'm talking about. And then, of course, you have the junkies who get pregnant and then shoot up or smoke crack or do whatever they do. And oftentimes, if they're pregnant, their baby doesn't make it or their baby is born with defects. Do we we attribute that to a tragic accident? Of course we don't. That would be incredibly stupid and foolish of us. It would encourage others to be careless and put their newborns or unborn babies at risk. No, we place the blame for that death on the irresponsible parent whose actions directly led to the death of that child. It is no different with these COVID vaccines. The data is there. The science is there. These vaccines kill and maim adults. They don't do anything to protect you from disease. You're 300% times more likely to contract COVID after taking a Pfizer vaccine. Ron Johnson shared, like we went over yesterday, shared the data on the Senate floor, 62% of of deaths during the the Delta variant phase or whatever that was, 62% of deaths were among the vaccinated. So it doesn't work. It's dangerous. It's killing people. It's killing people. And any parent who breastfeeds while vaccinated should be institutionalized along with the fools who are lying to doctors about their vaccine status in order to get another booster. Fools. Absolute fools. Violent, dangerous, unhinged fools. Are we supposed to just continue letting this happen? What do we say about the Germans from World War II era Germany? What do we say? Do we say that we understand how tough of a spot it was that they were in? That we understand why they didn't do anything to stop the extermination of Jews in Nazi Germany? Or do we say, how did you let that happen? How could you be so callous and cowardly to allow millions of Jews to be slaughtered and abused? We are those Germans right now. Babies are literally dying because abusive and deranged mothers are breastfeeding them while vaccinated. And it would be one thing if this vaccine was saving lives. 
if it was helping people, if it wasn't dangerous. But that's not the case. It's dan- It's absolutely dangerous. It is a, a, a it is bad medicine, bad freaking medicine, my friends. And anyone who who breastfeeds with this vaccine in their body is responsible for whatever happens to that baby. And I know these people don't know what they're doing, but that's never going to work in court, will it? You can't murder someone and then go to trial and defend yourself by saying, well, I had no idea that murder was wrong. Nobody ever told me. No, these people are culpable, whether they know what they're doing or not. And we as Americans have a responsibility, a duty, a moral obligation to stop them from destroying their fellow human beings. That's going to do it for today, folks. I greatly appreciate you tuning in. Don't get down. Just use this information to your advantage. Use the information on our website, Cool Hand News, to compile data to send to your employer, to send to the person mandating you take this vaccine. The data is all there. The science is in. These things are dangerous. What these employers, these schools, whoever, every institution mandating this vaccine, what they are doing is not only morally wrong, it will be proven to be legally wrong in the near future. And near future could be years. That's a possibility we have to contend with. In the meantime, keep your head up, keep your courage up. We've got this. Hold the line. Never give an inch to tyrants. We're going to be off tomorrow. It's my anniversary. I will not be doing any kind of work. So I will see you on Thursday. I hope you're having a wonderful week. Take it easy, y'all. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes.
It's TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. You've probably heard a lot about NFTs or non-fungible tokens this year. They seem to have come out of nowhere to become the most buzzed about intersection of technology and art in a long time. In his 2021 talk at TED Monterey, creative technologist Kayvon Taranian defines NFT for us and talks through their promise, their potential, and their place in a vision of the Internet's future. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive. Have you tried the Name Your Price tool yet? It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to find a rate that works for you. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive. Get your quote today at Progressive.com and see why four out of five new auto customers recommend Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. NFTs are not a scam. NFTs are not a fad. In fact, NFTs are the building blocks of the Internet of the future. But in order for us to see this future clearly, we first need to go back into the past. The year is 1992. The World Wide Web is only three years old. For the first time in human history, we share a global commons, where irrespective of where we are in the physical world, we can convene and share information freely. Most people at that time couldn't see what it meant to be connected by a network of computers. In fact, many people thought the Internet itself was a scam or a fad. But a few early Internet pioneers saw the potential in this burgeoning technology. One of those early Internet pioneers, John Perry Barlow, saw both the opportunities and pitfalls inherent in our new digital world. And of early cyberspace, he posed a prescient riddle all the way back in 1992 that I'll paraphrase for you. If our property can be infinitely reproduced and instantaneously distributed across the planet without cost, how are we going to protect it? How are we going to get paid for the work we do with our minds? And if we can't get paid, what will assure the continued creation and distribution of such work? A lot has changed on the Internet since 1992. The Internet itself is an alive and evolving technology. And as predicted by its earliest champions, the Internet has increasingly become our default context. Today, one's job, wealth, relationships, sense of self, are all often more mediated through our digital contexts than our physical ones. Yet Barlow's riddle has remained vexingly unsolved. Concepts like property and ownership, ideas that have been with us for centuries in the physical world, have evaded us in our digital spaces. We've tried to voice copyright, DMCA, DRM, and watermarks onto the Internet to protect our ideas and to restrain their distribution. None of these approaches have worked. Why? Because as Stuart Brand, another early Internet pioneer, famously coined, information wants to be free. It wants to travel effortlessly, without hindrance, without encumbrance. This is what allowed the Internet to succeed in the first place. 
Since 1992, we've uploaded trillions of photos and videos and even cat memes to the internet for free. And what business model has allowed this information to be free? Advertising. Advertising is the internet's default business model, not because that's what we want, but because it's what pays the bills. Right now, the few large corporations that run the most effective ad networks control most of the value on today's internet, not the people creating its content. On today's internet, we don't get paid for the work we do with our minds. And what's more, the content we upload to these services is trapped there. These services not only make money from our content, they control it. Until NFTs. NFTs are a technological breakthrough. They offer us the opportunity to break away from that broken system. So you're asking yourself, what is an NFT? It's a certificate of ownership registered on the blockchain for everyone to see. It's not too dissimilar to the deed you get when you buy a house in the physical world. But instead of a house, an NFT denotes ownership of a file on the internet. And unlike copyright or watermarks, which are ancient technologies rooted in bygone eras, NFTs are internet native. They are born of the internet for the internet. And NFTs don't simply port our existing model of ownership from the physical world, they improve it. In the physical world, ownership actually fences people out. It precludes others from enjoying what you own. I wouldn't expect to feel welcome in your home uninvited. Digital space, however, is expansive. It's home to the infinite, the exponential, the instantaneous. NFTs offer a system of ownership that reflects this expansiveness. With NFTs, my owning something doesn't preclude others from enjoying it. In fact, it's the opposite. The more an NFT is seen, appreciated, and understood, the more possibility it has to increase in value. Let's take an example. Neon Cat, a wildly popular, instantly recognizable cat meme. Since it was uploaded to the internet a decade ago, it has accumulated hundreds of millions of views. And precisely because of that virality, when it was auctioned as an NFT, it sold for 300 ETH, or the equivalent of over $600,000. And the person who now owns this NFT, they're not preventing anyone from liking, resharing, or remixing Neon Cat. Neon Cat is free to travel the internet as it always has. What's different now is that as NeonCat's popularity continues to grow, so can the value of the NFT. Because of NFTs, Chris Torres, NeonCat's creator, has received direct compensation for his creation. But what's more is he'll continue to receive compensation every single time the NFT is resold. This is because of the royalty system baked into the smart contracts that govern NFTs. NFTs are software. They can be programmed. And with something as complicated as royalties, which require enormous amounts of legal and manual labor to implement in our analog world, we can now express them in a few simple lines of code. This represents a breakthrough innovation for any industry predicated on royalty payments, such as publishing or music. And just as blogs and MP3s re-architected these industries in decades past, NFTs will catalyze their next evolution.
The internet dissolved our geographic boundaries. NFTs dissolve economic boundaries. Yatreda, an Ethiopian artist collective, created beautiful portraits of heroes and heroines from Ethiopia's past. They sold them as NFTs, and in one weekend they made 13 ETH, or the equivalent of over $40,000. And they were paid out instantly. No customs, no foreign exchange, no international wire transfers. An artist collective based out of Addis Ababa has the same economic tools at their disposal now as an artist in L.A., New York, or London. And while the NFTs for Neon Cat and Utrecht were created and sold on the same platform, they're not confined there. Remember, information wants to be free, and unlike the current internet, where information is made available through proprietary apps and platforms. NFTs are portable. Instead of living on a company's private servers, they live on decentralized infrastructure that is peer-to-peer, open, and transparent. But understanding this complex decentralized infrastructure is not a prerequisite to understand what NFTs unlock for the human experience. Once digital value and ownership are no longer the sole domain of a few corporations, radical new possibilities emerge. In other words, 30 years later, NFTs finally solved John Perry Barlow's riddle. And this isn't science fiction. The technology already works. NFTs are already being used by the next generation of internet pioneers. And in the coming decade, NFTs will reshape the internet as we know it, with property rights baked into its code. So, what does the internet of the future look like with NFTs as its building blocks? An internet where economic control rests in the hands of creators, not platforms. An internet where our ideas and creativity can be directly supported. An internet where information can be free, but where we get paid for the work we do with our minds. Thank you. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host, or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Tuesday, October fifth. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Mr. Asit Sharma. Good to see you. Good to see you, Chris. I am pumped to be here with you on a Tuesday. Tuesday Foolery is the best. 
Uh, I'm Don't tell that to the Wednesday people. <laughs> yeah, or certainly to Moser uh, on Monday. We'll, we'll, we'll just keep this between ourselves. No just one's actually that, listening. Just between um, friends. We got some some stuff to talk about. Um, we're going to talk mega caps. We've got the latest from consumer goods, but we have to start with the great Facebook outage of 2021. Shares of the social network fell five percent on Monday as Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp all went dark for six hours. This was also the day after 60 Minutes aired an interview with Francis Hagen, a former product manager at Facebook, who provided, this is the whistleblower who provided internal documents to the Wall Street Journal for their reports entitled The Facebook Files. Um, I should add that as you and I are talking, Ms. Hagen is across the Potomac River from where I am. She is up on Capitol Hill testifying before some folks from a little group I like to call the United States Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Um, In terms of the outage, Facebook apologized, saying um, it was due to configuration changes on the backbone routers. Okay, sure. I mean, I know so little about technology. They could have just said, we accidentally, you know, kicked a plug out. And it took us a while to figure it out. But anyway, so so two parts to this. And where do you want to start? Yeah, well, let's start with this outage, because I think that it's important to just take a quick look at this. It tells us that even the most redundant of systems are still highly complex in nature. So we can get lulled into complacency as consumers by subscribing to services that have 99.9999% uptime. That doesn't mean that the probability of downtime on a global scale among all the services we subscribe to is zero. And it's something we've got to live with. Now, this was a fairly long outage. What, more than uh, three hours? Yeah, Yeah, it was the longest outage since 2008. And it goes to show you that a platform like Facebook, which has such a phenomenal reach, is not immune to the same thing. Chris, I think it does come down to either someone inadvertently tripped over a cord (laughs) or... Or there is one room, a little room, somewhere in that labyrinth of server closets that needed some maintenance. On a more serious note, sure, it's very, very uh, complex to change any kind of server configuration that's going to affect millions of consumers, let alone in the billions. They've got 3 billion customers. So um, this is just the way things are today in a society which relies so heavily on technology. Um, I I will just add, I I talked with um, a couple of our colleagues, um, Katie Piper and and Jameson Haas, and they they work, um, they are two of the people at The Motley Fool who work with Facebook. Ours is a business that um, works with Facebook um, to advertise Motley Fool services through Facebook and Instagram. And it was interesting in talking with them, I was just trying to get some insight into sort of... um, you know, for example, has Facebook reached out to them? The answer to that is no, because typically Facebook doesn't do that sort of thing. Um, but in talking to them, it became clear that the ripple effect of what happened yesterday, because, you know, I looked at what was happening yesterday in real time. And as someone who spends time on Twitter, it was it was kind of amusing to see what people were tweeting and the way businesses were tweeting at one another because their Facebook platform was down and their Instagram account was down. Um there are direct-to-consumer businesses that got hurt yesterday because 
they rely heavily on Facebook to drive those impulse purchases. For anyone who's spent time on Facebook, you know, you've probably seen you know, ads served up to you of, you know, humorous posters or clothing or whatever. And, um, you know, those sales are gone. So, it will be interesting to see the extent to which direct-to-consumer businesses in this upcoming earnings season mentioned the outage as having a small material effect. You know, not unlike uh, how uh, a weather event can affect businesses for, for just, you know, a short amount of time. Um, but that's that's the outage. I also saw a lot of coverage yesterday of of the sixty minutes report and people asking the question: Is this different? Is this revelation, uh, these revelations, any different from what has come out in the past? And will things change? And most people, including Kara Swisher, said, "Yeah, I don't think so." Like it. it I'd like to think that, you know, and I'm paraphrasing her, I'd like to think that Facebook will make some changes to their algorithm based on these revelations in the Wall Street Journal. But if history's any guide, they're not going to. I would love for things to be different as well, Chris. Facebook has suffered over the years from privacy issues that have concerned its users, consumers. Um, it's struggling now with its current problem, its problem du jour of Instagram, which we know uh, has issues with body positivity among younger kids who use the platform. That's one of the things that's being covered in the Senate testimony today. But it also has a platform that's geared towards monetization. They're also being accused of lifting controls too quickly after the election in the interest of monetization of their platform and letting harmful messages ramp back up, which is being tied to the uh, events on January 6th on Capitol Hill. So, you have this plethora of images that is sort of the same old, same old with Facebook. When it comes down to looking at its core issue, I think the core issue here is that the executives seem to favor monetization more quickly in advance of working out their various issues that I've, I've just mentioned. Now, Stock has done very well. Let's flip the switch here and look at this from an investing point of view. Stock has done very well since it went public, but I believe that there is a cost to this. At some point, you have to pay the piper. The cost for Facebook of all these issues, even if things don't change, Chris, even if Congress does nothing, and I wouldn't bet against the authority of people like Kara Swisher, they know this industry so well, but the cost here is that Facebook for whatever reason, has traded for a long while at multiples below its peers, whether you're looking at price-to-free cash flow, forward earnings, most pricing multiples that you would apply, they traded a discount to where they should be for such a high-growth platform, high-margin platform. I think part of it is that investors are, A, always scared that the other shoe is going to drop and things will be different, that they'll get reined in, and B, investors just lose the savor of investing in this business proposition because, look, we're all human beings. We want to feel good about our investments. I personally don't own shares of Facebook, and I uh, don't look down on anyone who does, but I do think there's an opportunity cost for them in that they're losing the goodwill of investors, and some investors are staying on the sidelines. 
It will be interesting to see if um, we see some sort of institutional um, pairing back. Um, I don't know that that has a meaningful effect for um, everyday investors like you and me, but uh, but we'll see. Um, let's move on to Pepsi because third quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. The company also raised revenue guidance for the full fiscal year. Revenue was up nine percent in the quarter, and uh, Pepsi's CFO Hugh Johnston said, "If people are wondering if the revenue growth in the CPG space is temporary, in our case, it's not." Which I find to be a refreshingly bold comment from a CFO, um, and not to disparage CFOs, but as a group, there's no real incentive for CFOs to make bold proclamations. And by CFO standards, this one was kind of bold. It was a bold statement. We're not used to associating high single-digit organic revenue growth with multinational consumer goods conglomerates. It just doesn't happen. I remember a couple of years ago being very impressed and writing about this, that Pepsi was going to hit maybe 5% organic revenue growth, which in this business, if you can stay a point or two ahead of inflation, you're doing pretty good. So, I think Pepsi is feeling pretty good about the changes that CEO Ramon LaGuarta has implemented uh, in the short time he's taken over the reins from former CEO Indra Nui. He has made them a bit of a, they call it faster, stronger, better company. He has pared down some non-essential brands and allocated more resources to moving faster, meeting consumers where they want to be met, uh, etc. So, yeah, I think they have this working in their favor, but also there is an inflationary component to their pricing. Uh, Ramon LaGuarta talked today on the investor call about Pepsi's own pricing power because its brands are getting stronger. It is offering the consumer more of what the consumer wants. But we can't ignore that their commodity prices are rising as well. So, there is a component which is rising inflation, forces Pepsi to raise its prices, which translates into better revenue growth. So, I think there is another confidence factor underlying that statement. They pretty much know that uh, they're going to be raising prices again in the coming quarter, and that'll translate into a bigger top line. But we should give Pepsi a lot of credit for the work it's done. Profits are lagging a little behind where they might be just because of all the supply chain problems that COVID brought about last year and have spilled over into this year with the Delta variant. I'm sure you've seen, Chris, stories about the container ships that are floating around outside uh, West Coast ports. Uh, Still many snafus in that global configuration, but Pepsi's doing a fairly impressive job year to date. And, uh, you know, for those who are seeking dividend-paying stocks, next year they become a dividend king. I mean, it's it's something to raise your dividend every year for 25 years. They're at year 49 right now in terms of bumping up that dividend. Yeah, they, they've had a really nice structural uh, way of looking at their revenue and profits for several years now, which is it's shareholder-friendly first. So, there's always this capital allocation component. They're going to make sure that they're generating enough free cash flow to service a dividend. Pepsi does take on a lot of debt, but it's quite manageable. I don't expect that to change at all. Uh, If anything, 
as revenue continues to grow and some of the work they're doing on their cost structure, the optimization of supply chains and manufacturing, if anything, that will help cash flow even further. So they're going to be continuing this dividend and raising it a long time after they become a dividend king, Chris, in my opinion. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Got a question from Josh Mamari. Who writes, my question is mainly about Amazon, but it applies to similar companies. I've been invested in Amazon since 2010 and bought more along the way. I haven't bought any more shares in the last two to three years because I worry these types of companies are ripe for federal inquiries due to antitrust issues. Is it worth evaluating whether or not a company has increased exposure from unprecedented success before investing more money, or is it incredibly arrogant, and I should just invest more while it continues to dominate the market? It's a great question. And as Josh says, this is a question about Amazon. It could easily be a question about Facebook, or Microsoft, or Alphabet, uh, or Apple, for that matter. Um, It is, I I will say, as someone who is a a longtime Amazon shareholder, I, I do hesitate to to look at a stock that's north of $3,000 a share and does have some measure of risk. I don't think it's as big in Amazon's case as others, and we can get into that, but but it is hard to look at Amazon and be like, yeah, I, I, I want to buy more. <laughs> I want to buy more at this price. In general, it is. It's hard to look at so much appreciation and buy shares, although demonstrably for those who have done that over the years, it's worked out for them. But I think, Chris, what you are mentioning and what our listener is mentioning are very similar. In in practice, what's happened with these huge tech companies, big tech, is that they have diminished the risks we've associated with them in each of their respective industries over the years. They've reached massive scale. They're still growing. Their market capitalizations are still expanding into the trillions now. So, as they've conquered the risks that might have taken them out when they were smaller, a great question to ask is, well, are they potentially monopolistic entities now? I love them as stock investments, but are they getting too big? What I think the um, answer to that question here is in the U.S. Let's, let's stick with the U.S. for a moment is, the risk exists, but as you mentioned with Kara Swisher, will things change? Probably not too soon. We've got a little bit of political dysfunction uh, in this country uh, on the level of representation. So if you think about the Senate, and we've got a lot of grandstanding as well among uh, the senatorial class. Whenever you watch one of these hearings, it seems to be always half for the cameras and, and half substance. Now, by any objective measure, that's not to w- the way to go about a regulatory action. I've been surprised personally, this is just my take, in years past, watching congressmen talk to big tech, they seem to want a demonstration of the devices during the hearings. Now, they have clearly haven't come prepared with their homework. If you're going to regulate something, you got to have pretty crisp knowledge on the product, the service, and what you're trying to potentially break apart. I will say, though, if we move outside of the U.S., I think that the European Commission has been a little bit more on their game in looking at these issues finding some of these companies, forcing them to think about their practices. So maybe Europe takes the lead and it is a tangible risk. Is it uh, a risk so far that um, we really, really need to pay attention? I don't think so. I think 
if anything, the effect will be a net positive for shareholders of many of these companies that they will begin to spin off small parts of their businesses when they do feel a lot of heat and that writing finally comes on the wall, which is beneficial for shareholders. Suddenly, you get shares in a new business that's um, cleaving off from the parent and you've got the potential for more price appreciation through there. So, I, I'm going to blame it on uh, the lack of teeth in the current regulatory infrastructure. It's a lot different than we've seen in different periods of U.S. history. For example, when the railroads were regulated, uh, that was a different type of Congress then than we have today. That's just my two cents, Chris, but I'm, I'm really interested to hear your take on this. Well, certainly people I've interviewed uh, for Motley Fool Money when this issue has come up have mentioned, as you did, the, the European Commission. And that that's where investors, you know, to the extent that um, investors should be keeping an eye on something um, outside the United States, um, the European Commission is probably more likely to act. Um, uh, I, I also think back to a conversation I had earlier this year with Brad Stone, who covers technology for Bloomberg and and wrote a, uh, has written a couple of books about Amazon. And when I asked him about this specific topic, you know how how much of a threat is um, regulatory action um, for Amazon? And he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, um, Amazon is such a complex business that if you sat someone from the United States Senate down and walked them through every part of Amazon's business and how it works, they would probably end up with the conclusion that, oh, okay, yeah, this is not <laughs> this is not some super dominant. You know, it it, it, it makes sense to look. Uh, I, I shouldn't say it makes sense. I understand the people who look at Amazon just in terms of online retail and say, holy cow, this thing is so huge and so dominant. Of course, it must be broken up. I get it. Like, if that's just the, the lens you're looking through, I understand how you come to that conclusion. But when you expand it to be all of retail and you look at how big Walmart is, not that Walmart needs to be broken up, but just it's, I feel like Amazon is under much less of a threat of regulatory action than other big tech companies are. I would agree with that. And my last point, just to complement what you said, is the, the amount of capital that we see flowing into challenger ideas is only increasing. Just this morning, I read about a former Amazon executive who's uh, creating a company that's going to challenge UPS and FedEx for third-party shipping. So there's still plenty of money in the US flowing into ideas that challenge big tech. Uh, and I think I agree with you. I think Amazon is probably the one where you can make a great case that it doesn't enjoy some kind of permanent advantage. I think the other uh, pillars of, of big tech could bear some more scrutiny. Asa Charma, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.
episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.